Many patients who have a group of symptoms that have been deemed mysterious are often left to their own devices to figure out what is going on with their health. Clinicians or doctors might tell them that they don't have answers for them. Mast cell disorders or mast cell health issues is one of these conditions or one of these clinical scenarios that often leads people to a place where they are out of answers. Luckily, thanks to many dedicated health professionals, such as our guest, Dr. Jessica Pisano, we now have some construct and answers to help patients who are dealing with mast cell issues in finding answers and getting better health. So without further ado, this is Dr. Adam Rindy in the One Thing Podcast, and I'm welcoming, welcoming our guest, an expert in mast cell disorders, Dr. Jessica Bizzano. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, it's really unique for me to be able to get a chance to talk with someone who sees so many people with this condition or helps so many doctors and patients with this condition and conditions related to mast cells. So I'm I'm honored to speak with you today. This is a very complicated topic, and so this is new to a lot of people in understanding the inner workings of mast cells. And so I thought we could launch with just hearing what brought you into this space of helping people with mast cell disorders. Sure. So I started off in the nutrition field working primarily with things like autoimmune disease and mood disorders, autism, that sort of thing. Um, and then found myself starting to get ill. And so um, as I, you know, tried to figure out what was was going on, I was, you know, hitting dead end after dead end and not finding any help in the sort of, you know, functional medicine, systems medicine kind of world, nor was traditional medicine all that helpful. Um, an awful lot of research later, um, I figured out that I had this sort of constellation of issues that seemed to go hand in hand and had mast cell activation syndrome, uh, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, which is a connective tissue disease that's associated with it, and uh, dysautonomia and POTS, which also is, is highly associated. So uh, my initial goal was, was not necessarily to, to start a mast cell practice, but to find a way to get well myself. Along the way, of course, I had to figure out all the answers myself. Um, and having been in the nutrition world, um, somehow people figured out that I had it and that I had, had, had at least some idea of how to work with it. Um, and the next thing I knew, I had more and more mast cell patients coming in. And, and now, uh, close to a decade later, I would say that my practice is at least 75% or more mast cell patients. Ah, okay. Well, we could talk a long time about this topic because it's, you know, it actually could be like a weekend seminar. So I'm going to really do my best in keeping us um, to, to really focus in today. And um, one of the things I think is a really good place to start is just to explain to the listeners what is a mast cell, like basic, basic science stuff. Sure. So if we want to get to the absolute basics, mast cells are an immune system cell. They're part of our innate immune system, meaning we're 
born with them working, unlike uh, acquired immune system, which is our immunoglobulins, which develop along the way. And they're highly associated with the allergic response. So they um, they're little cells and they hold histamine inside. And when we're exposed to something that we're allergic to, they basically lose that histamine load. They do something called degranulation. Um, histamine is not the only thing that they hold or mediator is, is the scientific term for it. So uh, they have heparin, which is uh, certainly related to blood thinning. Then they also have tryptase amongst other things. But really, when you think mast cell, you should think that allergic response. Okay. And so um, going further into this, like the, the group of conditions that are related to mast cell disorders or mast cell imbalance are deemed what? Sure. So I think what's really important to understand is that there is a category and then there are diseases within the category. So the category itself is as mast cell um, activation disorders, um, disorders, of course, meaning more than one. Um, today, we're primarily going to be talking about mast cell activation syndrome, um, but there are other um, parts of this category. We have uh, mastocytosis, which um, is a, a disorder that causes increased numbers of mast cells. So uh, it has two forms. We have one that's typically found in young children and often is outgrown as, as kids get older and go into their teenage or adult years. And that's called cutaneous mastocytosis. Um, and it primarily is causing a skin-based uh, reaction where they get these uh, darker pigmentation areas. They're sort of these big brown blobs that develop all over the body, um, but it's fairly mild. It can sometimes progress into another disorder called systemic mastocytosis, which is a very complicated disease where we have uh, greatly increased numbers of mast cells throughout multiple organ systems, and that can cause um, anaphylaxis quite frequently in, the, in that patient population. Um, it's much closer akin to a cancer. Um, and then the last one is mast cell leukemia, which truly is a cancer, um, where we're, where the bone marrow is actually creating um, lots and lots of mast cells, causing, again, very similar symptoms to um, systemic mastocytosis. Uh, mast cell activation syndrome, on the other hand, we typically either have the same number of mast cells as the average person or just maybe a few more. They're not typically, you know, more prevalent than anybody else. But what happens is they are they're degranulating more and more frequently and for benign reasons, um, similar to an allergic reaction, but without that uh, uh, IgE uh, piece, that immunoglobulin E, which is typically associated with allergy. I see. And so the typical patient with mast cell activated, activated syndrome, how would they walk into an office or what are they typically dealing with that they're trying to figure out? Like, what are their symptoms? Sure. So this is the person that is sensitive to everything. They will come into um, a practitioner's office and they'll, they'll complain about the fact that every time they eat, they're having multiple symptoms. Their, their nose is running or congested. They're, they're having asthmatic response. They're breaking out in hives. Uh, they're having GI issues, whether it be um, reflux, constipation, diarrhea, or any combination of the above. Um, they really feel like almost every time they eat, they're, they're having this response. And sometimes when they're not 
eating, but maybe let's say uh, chemical sensitivities might set them off or uh, pollen counts can set them off. And it seems rather random. A lot of times they'll, they'll talk to you about, well, I only tolerate the following, you know, 10 or 15 foods. They, they often have these very, very limited diets. And if you are using uh, pharmaceuticals or using more of a natural arsenal of tools, they will inevitably have problems with the vast majority of substances offered to help them with these symptoms. So it can seem really daunting as a practitioner if you're not used to it um, in terms of, of trying to find a way to help these individuals. Mm-hmm. And so that's interesting. So the you're saying that the patterns don't have necessarily like a rhyme or reason, like it's not necessarily seasonal or related to any obvious external factor. Um, I mean, they can, they'll get worse around hay fever season, depending on where you live. Um, You will see some patterns in these individuals, but there are so many symptoms and so many um, systems in the body really that are affected by mast cell that Um, it's hard to figure out what's going on. And because a lot of times tests are coming back negative because practitioners are not running the right tests, a lot of times we end up with, um, you know, you know, doctors deciding that the the patient's making it up. Sometimes you'll get a psychiatric diagnosis in this population. Um, and so it can be really, really difficult for, for patients to find a doctor that actually believes their story and is willing to listen and kind of sort through all of these things. Um, you will see other things that you tend to find with them that aren't mast cell directly. Um, in my own case, I mentioned um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. Uh, that's really common. So hypermobility being one of the things we'll see in this population. And then uh, dysautonomia, meaning the nervous system isn't functioning functioning appropriately. Um, that particularly is, is uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS. Um, that causes basically when you stand up, your blood pressure drops and you your heart rate increases. So uh, a lot of dizziness, fatigue, uh, gastroparesis or slow stomach emptying is, is hallmark symptoms. Great. Well, that was very helpful. Um, so you talked about how it's all often misdiagnosed um, even if labs are drawn up or there's a workup that's looking for this. And can you explain, first of all, like the basic pa- panels and then what what are some of the mistakes made in the interpretations? Absolutely. So um, the, the typical markers that one should always run if you think you have a mast cell patient are going to be serum tryptase, which is one of the mediators the mast cells lose. Um, We will sometimes run a serum histamine, though, frankly, it's not always the most viable or appropriate marker, but sometimes that's what we have available to us. Um, Then the the other two studies that we typically run are going to be 24-hour urinary studies, the first being N-methylhistamine. And this is simply a metabolite of histamine. It's really important that we're looking at that 24-hour Uh, study because if you don't, you might miss something because it's not that every second of every day you're going to have elevated histamine as a mast cell patient. It's going to be that total overload. I often talk about a histamine bucket in this population where it's not one thing, it's multiple things that happen within a certain period of time that then eventually cause the mast cells to get aggravated and, and, and to granulate. 
And the last one, um, we also have a prostaglandin D2 that is part of the mast cell mediators list. Um, and so there's another metabolite, and this is a really long one, so bear with me, but it's 2,3-diner, 11-beta, prostaglandin F2 alpha. Um, is okay, the that's it. <laughs> um, you know, if anybody really needs it, um, I'm sure we can share contact information. I have have complete lists for these things. Um, that can only be done through through um, a Mayo Clinic and typically has to go through a teaching hospital. Um, the two 24-hour urine studies can be done from the same sample. Um, one of the biggest things, even if you know about those tests, that typically goes wrong, though, for our patients is that these samples need to be kept cold or the mediators go away. So we get negative results even when they should be positive. Um, the best scenario is if the samples are kept in the freezer between voids, um, but most of the uh, labs don't like that because they have to defrost it and measure it and refreeze it. Mm -hmm. um, it's the best thing for the sample, but the labs get frustrated. So I typically tell patients to keep it in the, in the refrigerator um, just because um, I've had labs reject samples otherwise. So you, you really need to keep it cold. Um, in terms of the tryptase level, if we were looking at something like a, a mastocytosis or um, you know something like a mass leukemia, tryptase would be greatly elevated, way, way, way above the range. In mast cell patients, it's often normal. And so the diagnostic criteria is actually a 20% increase from baseline to during a reaction. So it's a really tricky one because you need that initial blood draw and then you need to be able to find a lab when you're actively having a reaction to get that second draw in order to make that diagnosis. So that can be a really kind of challenging piece of the puzzle, although you only really need one of those things to ring true for a patient. So if there's elevated N-methylhistamine or elevated prostaglandins, catching that tryptase being elevated is not necessarily important. And then the other little piece of that is, is really that if tryptase is at five or above, typically you'll find tryptase more like between three and four in most people, including mast cell patients. You may actually be looking at a, a, a genetic issue to the tryptase gene where there's actually um, a copy number variant issue, meaning you have an extra uh, tryptase allele um, that can cause mast cells to degranulate in the first place. Okay. And that would be found by doing genomic testing? Correct. It's specifically the only company that can run that that I'm aware of is a company called Gene by Gene. Um, currently, it is not covered by insurance, unfortunately, though it is fairly reasonable. It's only $169 for the test, which for, for genetic testing is, is quite inexpensive. Okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the ideal situation is to get a baseline tryptase, um, along with the other labs that you mentioned, but get a baseline tryptase on a day where the patient is not activated. Correct, then, or generally is, is just a typical day for them. Okay, and then when they're in a flare to go back to the lab at that moment or that day and get another draw and compare Correct. the two levels. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so a lot of times um, this isn't part of the construct, at least at the current knowledge base that a lot of healthcare practitioners have. They'll just do the panel and not, have, not be able to see this uptick in tryptase and might say that this is not the cause of the symptoms. Well, exactly. And the other piece of that puzzle is even if, let's say we have a practitioner who has some knowledge of, of, of mast cell 
and they know they need to catch that 20% increase. The challenge is for a lot of these patients, they're actively going into anaphylaxis. Well, if, if you require an EpiPen, you're going to go over to your local ER to be treated. You can't not because it's dangerous. So now we're trying to convince the ER doctor to run a triptase. They're not interested in that. Even if you as the practitioner have sent an order in ahead of time saying, if my patient comes in in anaphylaxis, will you please run a triptase level? So it, it can be challenging. Or if it's a milder reaction, what we call anaphylactoid reaction, which is some of the early symptoms of anaphylaxis, but they don't actually typically progress into full-on anaphylaxis for many of our patients. What, what happens is they need to have that reaction during the normal working hours of a lab and be able to get over to the lab. Well, if you're not feeling well and your, your response to um, a, a particular mast cell reaction is vomiting or diarrhea, how quickly are you going to get over to that lab? It's not happening. So mm-hmm. it, it's a real difficult uh, thing to capture for a lot of patients. Right. And I imagine sometimes the there's just a, based on, the consortium of symptoms, there might be a presumptive diagnosis made by a clinician and, and to roll out treatments to see if there's, in, there's improvement. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times we're, we're going by, okay, well, the symptoms seem to line up with mast cell. So let's try an antihistamine or an H2 blocker, which are medications like Pepsid. Um, they might try a mast cell stabilizer. So if, if some of these things are working for the patient, a lot of times um, physicians will just go ahead and treat the patient with those. And that might get some relief for the patient, though. Typically, that's not sufficient in my experience. Mm-hmm. This is so helpful. That really clarified something that I've run into practice where um, it just really adds up, but the labs did not fit um, the criteria. And then that adds further frustration to the patient um, when they were gaining some hope that maybe we were onto some clues. And this gives a deeper level of understanding of what might be ac- more accurate assessment tools. Well, exactly. I mean, if you think about a 20% increase over baseline and the average level of tryptase being a three to four, unless you have that that familial alpha hypertryptasemia, the genetic issue that I was talking about, let's say we have a patient who has a tryptase level of a three and the, the doctor only runs it that one time. But if they ran it again at a different time, all we would need to make a mast cell diagnosis is a tryptase level at 3.6. It's that minute of a change. So- mm-hmm. In my experience, sometimes we have these, they go to different allergists and they've run a number of tryptase levels and I can prove it just by the multiple labs that have been run. So what I would say as a practitioner is if you are working with a patient and you're pretty sure that mast cell is going to be the diagnosis, every time you run blood work, run tryptase. It's inexpensive. I've not ever seen it uh, get kicked back by insurance. Um, It's an easy blood marker. It doesn't require fasting and you're likely to capture it at some point. Gotcha. Okay. One of the interesting connections that you've brought towards the forefront um, to me and probably to the community and healthcare providers is the link between small fiber polyneuropathy and histamine or mast cell activation. Can you talk about um, what is a polyneuropathy and just how um, histamine connects with it? Absolutely. So when we think about mast cell disorders, most people aren't thinking a whole lot of neurologic. So 
Um, but, but as I said earlier, in my own case and most of my patients, they're, they're experiencing dysautonomia, so dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. So why is that happening? Well, there can be two routes for this to, to really occur. One is the direct route, and one is sort of reverse engineering. And I think it really depends on what is primary for that individual. Is it the polyneuropathy that's primary or is it the mast cell? So what happens with a lot of these patients is they have connective tissue issues. They have the Ehlers-Danlos or something similar. Connective tissue is found in throughout the body, but one of the areas that people forget about is that our blood vessels are connective tissue. In every blood vessel, we need to be able to control blood pressure, and so we have a nervous system component called a baroreceptor that helps with that. When you also look at connective tissue, they are full of mast cells. So what happens is the connective tissue is not functioning properly. It's weak. You're not making collagen well enough, which can set off the mast cells. But it can also, because the baroreceptor is sitting there, set off our nervous system at the same time. So we end up with this sort of mast cell cascade of symptoms um, that then is going to stress out the histamine breakdown pathway or degradation pathway. Um, Part of that pathway does require appropriate methylation. So we tend to run low on things like vitamin B12 that are known causes of neuropathy. And it also can cause, um, because alcohol dehydrogenase, which is the final enzyme in the pathway, requires uh, vitamin B1 or thiamine as a cofactor. We see uh, lots of beriberi in in my practice. So for those of you who have forgotten that or are a patient and have never heard of it, this is a B1 deficiency disorder that they say is incredibly rare, and I would beg to differ in the mast cell population. Um, But B1 deficiency has extreme neurological issues that go along with that neuropathy being one of those issues. So um, so we can have nutrient depletions that are really causing the neuropathies. On the flip side, there's also a condition called autoimmune small fiber polyneuropathy. The reason it's called a polyneuropathy is because in addition to small fiber neuropathy, we see autonomic neuropathy. And, and, and frankly, I see more autonomic neuropathy than the small fiber unless it, it severely progresses. So we're getting these dysautonomias for these patients based on an autoimmune reaction, typically to either sulfatide or gangliocide. And what we think is happening is in in this patient population, um, they do have mast cell symptoms, but the mast cell is incredibly secondary to this autoimmune condition. And the reason for that, and I said this is the reverse engineering piece of it, is that um, because you have these autonomic fibers really close to those mast cells, when we when we start attacking those, those autonomic fibers, we then set off those mast cells. So it's not a direct approach. And typically getting the autoimmunity under control vastly improves the, the mast cell symptoms. Unfortunately, for a lot of these patients, they're getting their mast cell diagnosis and not the autoimmune small fiber polyneuropathy. Um, and so what's happening is they're having neurological reactions to everything they come in contact with, or at least that's what they think and their their doctors often think, when in reality, they're having these symptoms because they're autoimmune and a food might exacerbate that autoimmunity um, or the environment might exacerbate that autoimmunity but the reality is they're not actually necessarily or frequently mast cell symptoms. They're actually the, the autoimmune disease symptoms. Hmm. Okay. So do neurologists or rheumatologists look at this? 
<laughs> there are three that I am aware of in this country. Um, no, pardon, there are four. Um, there's one out in California as well. Um, there are about, about four. One is primarily doing research and three are seeing patients. Um, I, you know, it, it's a hard one. You really have to know which neurologist to send the patient to. It's, it's not as simple as finding your local neurology office and, and you're going to find a practitioner. Um, the biggest challenge is that the, the best case scenario for um, prognosis is um, neurological doses of IVIG. Um, but because this is a fairly new disorder uh, and they're just doing the, the full uh, clinical trials on it, it's not yet easily approved by uh, insurance. So it's a big fight to get treatment for it. Um, um, but uh, Dr. Kamali, who's down in uh, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, is doing a lot of research. He um, did an N of 38 study um, on this disorder and use of IVIG over a six-month period. Um, and of the 38 patients, 85% had improvement. Um, judged by, he, it was a, the quality of life um, and symptom questionnaire that he used and the um, it went from about 32% of what would be expected to about 75% of what was to be expected, which pretty much correlates to what I'm seeing clinically in terms of um, patients really getting so much better with IVIG. That is so great to hear. I mean, I, working with patients who've dealt with neuropathies, um, I know that there's a whole line of diagnostic rule-outs that they'll go through, anything from um, B12 deficiency to celiac disease to heavy metal disorders to multiple sclerosis. It just keeps going mm -hmm. and going. And oftentimes the doctors just shrug their heads and will say, we don't know what's causing it. Here's some gabapentin. Um, hopefully that will help with managing the, the um, neuropathy. And then people are set on their way and without any understanding of the unknown, the underlying cause. So this is really great to hear that there's um, other aspects to look at. Absolutely. And, uh, they, and they'll so much with, uh, biopsy, a uh, punch biopsy to look, uh, first of all, rule out large fiber neuropathy, uh, because if large fiber is found, they'll automatically go straight to IVIG because it's the, the prescribed treatment for it. Um, if not, they're looking at the, uh, I'm sorry, the EMG, and then they do the biopsy, the biopsies for the small fiber. Um, and then usually they'll run the antibodies if you're going to the right person. Sometimes we'll do antibodies first, depending on uh, how, how far away a patient is from a physician that knows the disorder. If they're far away, I typically advocate for, uh, for physicians to run it ahead of time so that the doctor can make the diagnosis on the spot if, that, if we, in fact, have all that data present. I see. Okay. Well, I'd like to move into the mood connection with mast cell activation syndrome um, or mast cell activation symptoms. And the uh, this is a really fascinating topic to me um, because, you know, this is often one of the ways that I can, you can really see the struggle that's going on when someone has mast cell activation symptoms, just the complete um, impact it has on moods. And can you go into that a little bit? Absolutely. So most people, when they think histamine, are going to think allergy. And that's all we really think of. We think of that immune response. But histamine is one of our major neurotransmitters or brain chemicals, um, very similar to what we think of when we think of serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine. 
Um, it has impacts really, frankly, on every neurotransmitter um, and certainly other areas in the nervous system and beyond, uh, hormones even. Um, but in terms of the direct effect of, of histamine on our neurotransmission is we find that it greatly increases uh, norepinephrine and epinephrine. It can increase glutamate. Um, it typically will also decrease some of our inhibitory neurotransmitters, so uh, serotonin, glycine, and GABA. And so what we're creating is a recipe for, for panic. And in fact, if we take a look at histamine and compare it to GABA, it looks so much alike uh, that it preferentially binds to the GABA receptor blocking GABA. Um, and that is the reason why a lot of mast cell patients are prescribed medications like Ativan um, that are used as emergency medications for reactions. Uh, clonopin occasionally um, from the natural arena, I really like L-theanine, works really well and is non-addictive. So we see a lot of these patients do extraordinarily well because it prevents histamine from binding to the GABA receptor. Um, if you think about what increasing those excitatory neurotransmitters are and decreasing the calming ones, if you think about an allergic reaction, it makes a lot of sense. If you are a patient and you are allergic to peanuts or shrimp or whatever your allergy might be and you're exposed and your body is going into anaphylaxis, Creating panic means you're going to get the help that you need and maybe make it a few seconds longer to find that help. However, when you're talking a mast cell patient, you're talking somebody about somebody who may not ever reach that full anaphylaxis, or they do occasionally, but they constantly have these high levels of, of excitatory neurotransmitters and low levels of the calming ones. And so a lot of times, and I, and I mentioned this earlier, our patients are getting these psychiatric diagnoses. And if you catch the patient at the right moment, you certainly see how that can fit. Um, but the reality is mast cell treatment typically alleviates symptoms a lot better than a lot of the psychiatric medications. Um, so it's a really kind of interesting thing. You'll even see um, MAOA inhibitors being used because um, uh, monoamine oxidase does um, break down histamine and other amines. So um, there's a lot of this sort of crossover in medications. Hydroxyzine, another really common one um, prescribed. It's both for, for mast cell disorders as well as for anxiety. So we see a lot of this crossover in the treatments um, because we are seeing so many uh, neurological effects. And then sometimes we have these secondary issues. If you think about our first generation antihistamines, speaking of hydroxyzine, but most, most prominently Benadryl, um, you may have, have heard about their anticholinergic effect. Um, so we see a lot of uh, patients who have a lot of brain fog issues. Some things are histamine induced, but a lot of times the medications can exacerbate it. So if you have a patient requiring Benadryl more and more frequently, um, it's going to uh, deplete their, their uh, choline levels, um, which I often check that box on, a, on an amino acid study because you can directly look at that pathway. But you do see that that is um, gone and, and problematic. If we don't have choline, we can't produce acetylcholine, which of course is incredibly important uh, for, for memory. Um, but interestingly, also seems to be par part of um, more, the more recent research in terms of what is a causative for uh, psychosis in schizophrenic patients. So we start to see, okay, well, here's where some of the more dramatic symptoms may actually be coming from. Wow, that is really fascinating. And also just to pack in there, um, 
attention uh, attention attention issues like ADHD, ADD, um, that that even like a separate diagnosis, but this would exasperate those symptoms, and then I imagine it could be the sole cause of of those um, disorders. Well, yeah, I mean they they can be part of the problem. I mean we're seeing very young children diagnosed with this disorder, so so yes, I mean if histamine is high, you're not going to have a child who can pay attention, and and that could be because neurotransmission is out, and it could be because the poor kid is super itchy and can't sit still. Um, so I've seen both. Um, so you have to kind of, as a practitioner, figure out what is actually driving that that um, sort of ADD, ADHD kind of symptom and and sort of figure out, well, how much of it is brain-based versus uh, non-brain-based. So for me, I like to use a lot of uh, metabolomic kinds of studies like organic acids and amino acids and that sort of thing, because it allows me to really kind of see biochemically what's driving what. Wonderful. Well, I have a question from a listener that I'd like to just bring into the, the discussion, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Okay. So um, this is coming from a patient that is dealing with mast cell activation issues. Mm-hmm. And they're having problems figuring out what to focus on as far as all the different ways to address mast cell activation. They said that their mast cell issues like 100% in their gastrointestinal tract, and food is the biggest trigger. And um, has and they they're just wondering like where to where to start. Um, there seems to be some connection with their menstrual cycles and being activated, and mm-hmm. also skin issues like folliculitis, um, and. They're just wanting to um, kind of see like where where to even start when there's so many things to look at. Sure. So, I mean, the basics need always need to be checked first. Are we doing uh, your your antihistamine, which is an H1 blocker, something like a Claritin, Zyrtec, Zizol, Allegra? Um, do we have a histamine 2 blocker on board like Pepsid? Um, given the amount of GI symptoms, do we have a mast cell stabilizer for the gut like chromalin sodium on board? Um, they won't fix everything, but until that's in place, it's hard to start to peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak, because there are so many aspects and things are really complicated. Um, I think that the average, you know, physician, as long as they can prescribe can probably help with that aspect. But while that's going on, you really want to seek out um, somebody who's really, truly competent in working with mast cell disorders, where um, you are not the only mast cell patient in that physician's office, but one of many. Um, because it really, it takes a lot of experience in order to pick appropriate interventions to be able to recognize those patterns. So for example, we see a lot of food reactions in this population. Some of them are because of cross-reactive pollens. Sometimes it's for because of biochemical issues. Um, so for example, um, histamine is derived from the amino acid histidine. Um, not to get too biochemically heavy for you, but what happens is that is a folate-driven process and creation of of glycine, which is an amino acid and a calming um, neurotransmitter, um, starts to go uh, awry. We can't 
actually create sufficient glycine because of this process. Um, and glycine conjugation actually breaks down an anti-nutrient called salicylate, which is found in the vast majority of plant-based foods. And so we see salicylate intolerance drive mast cell for many patients because of this. But it's it's absolutely fixable in terms of using glycine and then vitamin B5 or pantothenic acid, which actually kind of reverses that problem. But you need somebody who really knows enough to look at these things, look at what it is that you're reacting to and, and, and really kind of create a spe- actual specific program. Um, I have patients that have uh, histamine intolerance and other patients that tolerate high histamine foods. Salicylates can be a problem or not be a problem. So if there's no one size fits all solution, unfortunately. Okay. Thank you. And on the same listener followed up with just saying that they know notice trends during certain times of their menstrual cycles, such as um, towards the beginning and duration of menses and then during ovulation. Can you mm-hmm. speak to that? Absolutely. It's because histamine actually is part of the um, the hormone changes that occur during um, menstruation. Um, interestingly, it's also... Um, Uh, If you actually look um, during pregnancy, mast cell issues will actually improve. Um, And that's because in order to maintain appropriate hormone status and also prevent allergy to the fetus, the placenta creates the enzyme diamine oxidase that breaks down histamine. So because of these crossovers and biological function, we do see mast cell patients that are female having strong reactions around their their changes in in hormone levels. Um, We also tend to see a lot of estrogen dominance in these patients. And so um, typically speaking, working on the the sort of natural things we can do to help with estrogen dominance, um, you know, using things like uh, diamine oxidase, sulfur is well tolerated, can be helpful. Um, I really think that um, magnesium in a in a usable form, either magnesium threonate or glycinate pro, uh, product is really helpful um, because methyltransferase that breaks down uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine gets stressed out by the increased norepinephrine levels in mast cell patients, but is also responsible for the breakdown of estrogen, which is also a catechol. So anything we can do to kind of keep our estrogen levels a little bit more stable and a little closer to normal can be really helpful um, for mediating some of these responses that mast cell patients have. Fantastic. Thank you for answering those questions. Really appreciate that. Well, you've been very generous with your time, and I want to um, get a chance to hear about some of the things you're working on. If you could just leave us with some parting words, like a take-home message, and then tell us about what you're up to professionally and how people can follow your work and maybe get in touch with you if they need your uh, as a need a consultation with you. Absolutely. So um, my practice is uh, mast cell advanced diagnostics. I'm uh, just outside of uh, Richmond, Virginia, um, but I mostly see my patients uh, through through telemedicine because I see patients throughout the United States, Canada, and the UK. So um, if you're not in my area, that doesn't mean that I, I can't see you. Um, I, I have a, a sort of comprehensive program that, that we do where we, we every patient goes through a three-part intake uh, 
the first one is with my uh, health coach, uh, who's going to look at uh, environment because environmental sensitivities are so prominent in this population, as well as the mind body pieces. She's she's um, trained in neural retraining. She has a social work background and um, the the chronic disease element, as well as the amount of um, misdirected medical care, often causes sort of medical PTSD in our population. So she's really good at helping our patients through that. Then they move on to my staff nutritionist, who's going to assess both diet and gastrointestinal symptoms, and then a final appointment with me to really look at the overarching medical issues that are going on and and put together that comprehensive plan, as well as coordinating medical care, because there are very few providers that really understand the disease. Um, I'm a doctor of clinical nutrition by by training. I have a lot of science background. I do a lot of nutritional genomics with my patients, um, but I also spend a lot of time connecting them either to the correct physicians if they don't have them or working with their current physicians in order to get the best care. Um, so that's a huge piece of what we're doing. Um, I'm also working on, on onboarding a, a licensed um, a, a therapist and hopefully we'll soon have a, a nurse practitioner on board and we'll be launching um, a corrective exercise Pilates program for those with connective tissue disease, hopefully in, in the next six months. So we've been really busy trying to create a really comprehensive um, practice that really can help patients with the vast majority of their medical needs. Um, and then for uh, physicians, I spend a lot of time also doing practitioner consults because mast cell is so complicated that you may have that one-up patient and you're not really sure what to do with them as a physician, you know, um, what medications might be helpful, what tests need to be run, what's, what's the root of what's really driving their mast cells in the first place. So that's something else that I spend a lot of time doing, as well as education and, and certainly doing some traveling and speaking as well. Great. And I will say for the listeners, your website is an excellent resource as far as learning more information. It's, you know, it's loaded with deeper um, articles and links. So I encourage people to go to your website. Can you say that URL again? Sure. It, it's masscelladvanceddiagnostics.com. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed speaking with you, Jessica. I learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners did as well. And thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to visit with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. We'll talk. We'll hopefully keep in touch down the road. Absolutely.